Welcome back to the AP World History Podcast. Uh, we're going to be diving into our last sessions here uh, in that we're going to be looking at this uh, integration of the global economy and this global culture and world that we now live in today in 2018. Um, we're going to be looking into four parts of this. We're going to be starting on the economy first. Then we're going to look at the the feminist side of this and the rising women's rights throughout the world. Then we're going to look at the religious reaction to this new culture uh, with feminism, but also just the integration of a global Western culture pushed more towards that Western culture. Uh, we're going to see their reaction to it. And then we're going to look at the environmental impact of, of all of this. Um, so we're going to dive into the economy part first because that really lays the foundation for everything else. And to do that, we got to go back all the way to World War One, even though we're going to be talking more about what's been going on in the last uh, 30 to 50 years. And uh, if we go back to World War One and World War Two, if you remember after World War One, uh, the United States and almost all the other nations go in and just look in on themselves and try to rebuild their own economies and, and deal with things on their own, even though the world is becoming more and more integrated. And so then what happens is you have a global depression uh, starting from the Great Depression in the U.S. and that leads to economic hardships and on top of other factors that leads to World War Two. Then World War II happens. The U.S. says, "Okay, we can't do this again. We got to become more integrated. We got to become a better. Um, the world's got to become better and and uh, come together as a global economy and not just be uh, however many individual nations." Now, whether or not this was like the the master plan uh, going out from then or not, and what they'd see what it became today is a whole another question. But they put us on a path to where we're at uh, nowadays. And so, what you have is the U.S. does the Marshall Plan to help rebuild those uh, nations really uh, destroyed uh, by World War II. And that sets off uh, what will then become the, uh, it doesn't directly stem from this, but it'll lead to institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund being created. And uh, these two organizations help give loans to developing nations and to uh, nations that just need economic aid to uh, help with their development. And uh, the World Bank is the one that's usually run by kind of the U.S. The IMF or the International Monetary Fund is done by the Europeans. And the current uh, leader of the World Bank uh, has a connection to Iowa in that although he was born in Seoul, South Korea, he uh, his family moved to Iowa and he went to Muscatine High School and then he went to uh, the University of Iowa. So we have some uh, cool um, connections there to that here in Iowa, to the that institution. Uh, but... Uh, those institutions are the only things that make this uh, new world possible. Uh, you have the promotion of free trade by the Western nations. Uh, you have the U.S. dollar becoming an international currency, essentially, in that uh, you can take the U.S. dollar pretty much anywhere and have it exchanged, or you might even be able to use it as money in that country. And that's because of the stability uh, in it and uh, the global recognition of it from what happens after World War II and the integration of the world economies. And uh, also, you have lots of new technology that come about. Um, with the combustion engine, we have new machines that can transport goods a lot faster and a lot more than what was possible before. So with speed, we got the airplane. The airplane can uh, bring us something from China if we needed it today. Uh, it would bring us to it would bring it to us within 24 hours or so. So that, that leads to a fast integrated world economy there. But for the most part, most things aren't traveled or, or aren't shipped in planes. Uh, instead, we use giant cargo ships and tanker ships to uh, transport goods, whether that's food stuff, uh, whether it's oil, uh, natural gas, uh, whatever uh, resources we need, or uh, transporting 
uh, cargo ships full of um, cargo containers that have finished products, manufactured goods, or raw materials in them. So uh, we see that going on. <coughs> and not only do we have improvements in transportation, we have in improvements in, in communication. So we had uh, phones were the main way to talk instantly with someone across the, the world in the 1950s, 40s and 30s and 20s even. And then uh, you have a shift as we go forward to eventually creating something called the Internet. Uh, the United States creates that and... Uh, then they uh, share that with the rest of the world and now you have this global internet that we have today where you can search anything and everything that you want on it. You can find and talk to someone across the world. You can find a product made across the world and get it shipped to your house. Um, so you have all that kind of stuff going on and uh, that's led to the global economy coming closer and closer or more tight-knit. Um, so uh, let's let's dive into this then. What does this look like? How did this How did this take place? And so I already kind of brought up that after World War II, we have this integration going on. And uh, we see that with the, the U.S. Uh, kind of dominating manufacturing. The U.S. was huge back in the 1950s with manufacturing. I mean, they're going to produce, I think, uh, this comes up a little bit later in, the, in that section, in the first section there. Uh, but we were producing about 50% of the world's products then. Uh, that's going to shift by the time we get to where we're at today. But they were, they were producing a majority of the world's products and shipping it throughout the world. And so that led to uh, the U.S. becoming more connected and just the world in general becoming more connected because everyone was shipping stuff to each other to, to, uh, to the benefit of each other. Uh, so then uh, what happens, that leads to international or multinational uh, corporations or transnational corporations where this company doesn't just focus on what's going on in the U.S., but they focus on what's going on in, in China and in Britain and wherever else they have offices. And so they set up offices and factories or uh, plants or whatever throughout the world. They're not just in China or the U.S. So uh, you have that. That leads to more connection. And uh, these... Um, these corporations uh, at times will become huge. Uh, you can talk about uh, Apple today. You can talk about uh, Google, um, uh, Netflix. Uh, the oil companies are really the biggest ones. So you got Shell and ExxonMobil and all those guys. You got food industries like Kraft. You got uh, tobacco uh, being one. And so you got all these um, all these corporations that are spread throughout the world. And uh, this is a, a really good thing for those developed nations that have that. Uh, but this can be a, a detriment for those uh, developing nations because uh, those developed nations, transnational corporations, can squash the uh, starting out businesses, the entrepreneurs in those other countries that want to set up a, a new business. Um, but... Uh, these there there is a benefit even if it's not as good as having maybe your own um, companies in your country and that is that they will create factories and whatnot to exploit the the labor and resources that you have and so um, or utilize I mean and it does exploit them so exploiting is kind of a negative term but it's not always that it's not over always a super negative thing um, or a, a negative thing I shouldn't just say it's super negative but um, there's that going on and so you can see like a, a Nike having factories in Malaysia or um, or uh, Mattel manufacturing toys in China and and all those types of things those are some good examples of uh, of that going on and 
Uh, the reason why you do this is because the labor is a lot cheaper in those regions. There's less regulations to protect the workers, so you don't have to have factories up to the same codes that they're in the U.S., which makes it expensive. You don't have to pay the workers as much as they have to do in the U.S. or other developed nations. And the environmental regulations as well uh so there's it just makes it a lot cheaper and it's and transportation of goods isn't that expensive anymore so you just you you just transport it to the u.s or to wherever you need to ship it to from the manufacturing headquarters and um it's all good and uh so that's kind of what the national transnational corporations do and how they kind of work in a nutshell and then uh with people, uh, because uh, not everyone is staying in those countries, a lot of them are fleeing um, countries where uh, there aren't the manufacturing jobs and trying to get to countries that have them. And, and for the most part, those, although they're in China and Southeast Asia and South Asia, which is where we see most of that manufacturing being done today, um, I think the, the numbers, again, at the end of the, the, the section here on the economy in Chapter 23, I uh, would tell you that it's about 8.1% in 2008 that the U.S. did. Uh, that means most of the rest of it is being done in South Southeast Asia. So we, the U.S. went from 50% of the global manufacturing to only 8.1%, uh, with China doing a huge percentage of it. I don't have a specific number there uh, for that for you, but uh, China would have the majority of that today, uh, and that they're kind of the manufacturing capital of the world. And... Um, so you've got that going on. So you got manufacturing, but then you got people fleeing the situation that they're in the, in their countries if they don't have that. If the industrialization is really lagging behind, they're in an under underdeveloped developing nation. Uh, people are fleeing those places because uh, one, there's no economic opportunities, or two, because there aren't any economic opportunities, there's a lot of instability there, and there's dangers of of living there, and so they're fleeing to get to a safer place. And so we see those people who are primarily in the global south fleeing towards the global north and going to Europe or going to the United States or Canada. And so uh, you have uh, examples of this with migration to the United States. Um, from Mexico or through Mexico from the rest of Latin America, or you have immigration from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and from the Middle East to Europe where things are going to be safer um, and where there are more job opportunities. Now, uh, the problem with that is these developed nations usually resist that because they're seeing this as a threat to their uh, culture and uh, to deal with a large amount of immigrants can be really, really expensive and really difficult. So how do you integrate them and do all that stuff? So it's, it's a really difficult thing to figure out how do we do this. But at the same time, uh, something's kind of got to be done to, to help these people, uh, whether it would be going in and helping through the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and trying to stabilize those countries and produce economic opportunities or whatnot. Um, that's the only way that you're maybe going to stop those is stabilizing those countries. But um, that's that's something that's going to be very difficult to do. And so what we see is a large amount of immigration uh, going up there. And so the best example of this is over the last, uh, or within the recent uh, past, is looking at the uh, immigration of Latin Americans, uh, and primarily Mexicans is what the book put, put, points it out as, uh, from Mexico to the United States. And between 2000 and 2010, you have 6.65 million Mexicans uh, coming over to the U.S. And 
Uh, that's a lot, and that was uh, really through my high school years, and you could see that in the political campaigns um, and the rhetoric of uh, George Bush, or George W. Bush, I should say, and uh, the building over the desire to build a border wall and uh, increase border security and increased um, ICE or immigration activity to, to kick people out that were here illegally. And um, although Obama was quieter on that, Obama, I think, kicked more people out than Bush did. And then you had the rhetoric of Donald Trump uh, and the wanted desire to build a border wall across the whole thing and kick out anyone that's illegal. And so you see less immigration, whereas in the campaigns, you might have heard uh, if you're in the U.S. listening to the, the Democrats and Republicans on their campaigns in 2016, and you're here this coming year since we're in a midterm election year um, in 2018, uh, you're going to hear rhetoric about immigration and stuff like that. Well, the the thing is, there isn't that much. Um, one, the the recovery that happened or the, the economic depression that happened um, in 2007 because this world is still integrated. Uh, and when one thing happens in one place, it affects everywhere else, especially when it happens in the largest economy of the world. Uh, that housing crisis killed the U.S. economy. And... Uh, what happened is because the U.S. economy got killed, there aren't job opportunities for those Latin Americans and Mexicans to um, come to. And so they they stopped coming because they're not the, the risk isn't worth the reward of coming over to the United States. Now, for some people, it is because they're fleeing uh, uh, gangs, violence and stuff like that in their home country. But um, for those just looking for the economic opportunities, it's better in Mexico if you're not fleeing from danger and stuff like that. And so... Uh, we, we've had maybe even a net negative immigration from the United States going back to Mexico uh, of those illegal immigrants. Uh, but you won't, uh, yeah, I won't go in. I'll, I'll try to avoid going to politics and stuff like that there on that. But um, that's that's kind of a trend we see going on is there, the, the global south is, is moving towards the global north to fulfill some of the economic needs of those of cheap labor. Um, and manufacturing jobs because many in the developed world are looking to avoid those things nowadays and um, we do see some shifts happening though of, of maybe less of that happening in the United States uh, because of certain policies and we see the Europeans really resisting the refugee crises that going on from Africa and from the Middle East um, so uh, yeah so that's kind of all the, the the movement of peoples we see these mass migrations there and I kind of started getting into the, the next section there on the instability there, uh, and that there is stability, but there's also instability in what happens. There's more stability, there's more growth going on in that, in that everyone's interconnected, and so everyone's supporting each other in, in some way or another, uh, but that can lead to some instability that when one nation falters, it can lead to a lot of other nations falter, especially when it's a very powerful nation like the United States. And so that housing crisis uh, really affected the global economy and, and, and stalled it and uh, slowed it down. But even with that, we can see that uh, from 1950s or so, the 1950s, uh, where the global GDP or the gross domestic product or how much the world was worth was about $7 trillion to now uh, getting closer to the present um, is $73 trillion. So it's gone up 10 times in 60 years. So that's that's huge. And that shows how much the, the global economy is growing and how it's becoming more integrated and, and better. But Again, that can falter because of the U.S. housing crisis. It can falter because of debt crises in nations like um, in the European Union, which is an economic organization that uh, unites many European powers. Um, 
you can see Greece, Italy, and Spain really affecting that with their debt crises that went on and lead some countries to want to leave, like Britain, which they wanted to leave because partially of those debt crises, but also because they um, didn't want to have to take in the immigrants that are flooding in there, which uh, the European Union once spread around throughout all their nations um, and not just to be burdened with in Greece and Italy. Um, so we see that kind of stuff going on. And... Um, Again, uh, through the International Monetary Fund and World Bank and then those transnational corporations, we see more industrialization going on throughout the rest of the world. And so uh, we see more manufacturing coming up in India. And so that's becoming a rising global economic power. We see China uh, will soon in the next uh, decade or so will eclipse the U.S. economy um, with uh, with their economic output. Now, they won't match the U.S. output GDP, uh, per capita GDP-wise, but they will eclipse the, the total U.S. GDP because, uh, they're, well, they're a much larger country and are putting in policies to help that GDP grow or their, their economic growth grow. Um, and so we see we see them getting some benefits in their, in their industrialization and they're uh, eventually will be able to move kind of off on their own um, and do their own type of thing. Uh, but then one final thing with this uh, global economy uh, dealio that we're looking at is the U.S. became a de facto empire. Um, and, and maybe that's not maybe the best term for it, but uh, it, it kind of became an informal empire. Maybe we can go with that. Uh, in that uh, what happens is the, the U.S. tends to dominate what's going on in the world, uh, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the U.S., really um, dominates the global economy and dominates the global security on things. And so you see a kind of informal, um, uh, no, I don't want to use that term, but um, what you see is the there's no one to really stop what the U.S. is doing. So economically, there's no one really there to stop the uh, U.S. manufacturers, transnational or corporations, um, as well as the European transnational corporations, there's no one really there to stop them uh, and rein them in. Um, there's uh, no one there to stop uh, the U.S. Um, from going and invading Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, uh, Afghanistan might have been justified because of 9/11, uh, with Al Qaeda's um, with Al Qaeda's uh, links to uh, the Taliban who ran Afghanistan, but. Um, the the war in Iraq uh, didn't really have any major connections to things, but no one really resisted uh, on a large scale saying, hey, the United States, you can't do this. And uh, the whole goal of all this has been to eliminate the Islamic terror uh, throughout the world and to try to build new nations that were more Western and democratic and, and make things better. And you guys can see and make your own judgments on how well that's going um, today um, with, with what you're seeing. But... Um, there isn't much resistance to what the U.S. does. The The best example that I can show actually where there is resistance to what the U.S. policy is is in Syria with the civil war that's been going on there since the Arab Spring. Um, began in 2011 where you have kind of a, a proxy war going on there between the U.S. and, and Russia and that Russia is really back in the Syrian uh, government and has helped Assad maintain his power and will uh, pretty much for sure keep his power whereas the uh, U.S. backed the rebels but the rebels um, couldn't uh, couldn't take out Assad especially once he got the backing of uh, Russia. So uh, you do see some maybe counter um, counters to the U.S., but nothing significant in what's going on globally. Um, and what else do I want to bring up with that? 
there's no one to really also, because no one reins them in with, with some of these policies, these international policies, there's no one that really stops them other than condemning them, uh, the United States, from uh, bad actions that they've done. So the uh, idea of uh, torture being okay when we waterboarded and Guantanamo Bay and having a base like Guantanamo Bay, um, we get criticized for it, but there's no, no one that's going to do anything significantly against us because... I don't want to say they need us or they need the United States, but um, if you go and critique the United States, then you might not get the economic aid that the United States gives out. So people are hesitant to to, to do those things, as well as uh, you can talk about the Paris Climate Agreement or the Kyoto Protocols that were to uh, help fight uh, global warming and environmental issues. Uh, the U.S. has said, no, we're, we're not playing ball with that. Uh, and there aren't really any major repercussions. Uh, the global world is not going to stop trading with the United States because they don't accept those those accords. So um, that kind of leaves us off there with the global economy where it's more integrated. Uh, the U.S. is the dominating driving force in it. Uh, but that could be uh, changing um, as we're going and the U.S. becomes second in GDP. Um we see things shifting and not the U.S. just dominating and controlling things anymore, especially with the, the rising power of China, who might become the next major superpower. So there might be a rival out there for the United States in China um, that that could limit this. But that's still uh, a little ways down the road here uh, before we can we can make any major judgments on that. So that's that's kind of the global economies here in a nutshell. Uh, next, we're going to take a look at the global uh, feminism that rises during this time.